what is the secret to happiness? Do you think you know it? Think you figured that one out yet? People have been trying to answer that question forever. And those polls are out there trying to discover the recipe to happiness. And typical responses to what produces happiness include laughter, good relationships, good health, getting enough sleep, financial security, having a job you enjoy, being accepted by others. Really, the the depressing reality with all these definitions of happiness is that they're all based on circumstances, most of which are outside of our control. And so if the circumstances happen to align for you, then, then great, you get to be happy, but otherwise not so much. Perhaps that's why just a third of Americans say they're happy, despite being in the richest nation. In fact, records show going back to the 1950s is when Americans said they were the happiest. But since then, the per capita income has drastically gone up, yet we're not happier. You know, ask anyone to give you the top three things that make for happiness, and money is going to be on everyone's list. Money itself doesn't make people happy as if people want to literally like swim in it, but people genuinely believe, I think mostly, that money can actually buy happiness. That's why they want it. Money represents purchasing power, and it gives you the ability to buy all the other things that make you happy. So really, money represents the gateway to all of your heart's desires, whatever they might be. And with enough money, you can get all those things. That will make you happy, or so it goes. But even that doesn't seem to work out. I mean, for one, money is fleeting. Easy come, easy go. Holding on to money can be like holding on to a fistful of sand. It just keeps spilling out. But even if you manage to amass a lasting fortune, and you, you, you could buy everything your soul desired, you would still find yourself eventually unhappy. You'd still be unfulfilled. And why is that? Well, as theologian William Hendrickson, he perfectly put it when he said, quote, God never made a soul so small that the whole world will satisfy it. God never made a soul so small that the whole world would satisfy it, end quote. In other words, God made us for more. Long before Hendrickson, the same lesson was learned the hard way by King Solomon who just so happened to be the richest man in the world. And he used his enormous wealth to buy everything his soul desired. He had a massive military to a harem of wives. But after he drank his fill of what this world has to offer, he was still terribly thirsty. And he found nothing could quench that thirst, the longing of his soul to be satisfied. Nothing in this world can And so from a human perspective, Solomon rightly concluded, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, Ecclesiastes 1-2. And I'm sure you all here have experienced this. I mean, have you ever thought or even just felt in your heart that if I just had this one thing, then I'd be happy? I mean, the child says in his heart, "If if I just had that toy then I'd be happy. And he gets the toy, but before long, he's not happy. It's not enough. Or the young adult says, if I could just be married, then I'd be happy. So she gets married, but after a year, she's not happy. Turns out living with a fellow sinner can cause a lot of grief. (laughs) 
Or the middle-aged couple says, if we could just get out of this apartment and buy a house, we would be happy. So they buy a home, but, but soon they're not happy. Turns out home ownership comes with a lot of unexpected pressures and burdens. Or the company man says, if I could just retire, then I'd be happy. So he retires, but eventually he's not happy because now he has nothing to do. However you would fill in the blank, it wouldn't be enough. If I just had this, then I'd finally be happy. You, I bet you've felt it, you've tried this, you know it just it doesn't work, it doesn't last. Even if you get that thing, it doesn't take very long before you find yourself, I need something else now. I, I need the next thing to make me happy. And the reason for that is God has made our souls too big. They, they can't be satisfied or filled up even with everything this world has to offer. They, they were never meant to be. Only one thing can fill the soul and give it lasting meaning and fulfillment, and that's God himself, living in right relation with the creator. Knowing God is what makes all life worth living. And the real secret, not just to happiness, but an inner, deep, lasting joy, is knowing God and being reconciled to him. Your soul yearns for satisfaction and fulfillment. And that's not wrong. It's just that there's only one place that's going to find that. It's in the creator, in your God. We all know the world's definition of happiness, and it just doesn't work. It doesn't take long before you learn it. It doesn't last. It doesn't satisfy. How about now we hear the Lord's definition? What does the Lord Jesus have to say about the secret to happiness? Wouldn't you want to know something like that? Well, he tells us in the opening words of his greatest sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount. Only Jesus takes us far beyond the emotion of happiness. He tells us what it means to be blessed. Truly blessed, divinely favored. This is found in the famous Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. You can find them in Matthew chapter 5. Open your Bibles there now for our time together. Matthew chapter 5. Last week, we cracked open Matthew 5, and we just did a a basic introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, the the greatest sermon ever. Its setting is found in the first two verses. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth, and he began to teach them. You know, what follows after that is some concentrated teaching on discipleship. We find here a depiction of the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ befitting the kingdom of heaven. In this sermon, Jesus informs us how to live in light of the law of God, how to live in light of the presence of God, how to live in light of the fear of God. He presents a high standard of righteousness, but by no means are we to think that we must achieve or earn this righteousness to enter the kingdom. Now, we're all unrighteous before God. Rather, God grants us the perfect righteousness we need to be accepted by him as a gift by his grace, and we receive that by faith in Christ. But for those who have been made righteous by faith, the Sermon on the Mount shows us what the demonstration of that righteousness looks like. This is the fruit of righteousness. As Martin Luther rightly noted, 
Jesus is not here in this sermon telling us how to become Christians. Now he's telling us about the fruit that should emerge from the one who's already been placed in a state of grace. And so this whole sermon comes in a context of grace, not law. And that's something we explored last time. But speaking of grace, the way Jesus intentionally begins this sermon, namely with the Beatitudes, concretely frames this whole message in grace. You see in the message, before making any demands in our behavior, Jesus just pronounces divine blessing on his disciples. He's showing that the righteousness described in this sermon is a result of God's grace rather than a requirement for it. You might be familiar with these Beatitudes. They're found in verses 3 through 12. And they form the critical introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. The term beatitude itself comes from the Latin for this word blessed. It refers to a state of blessedness. And it's a fitting title. Because in this opening, Jesus gives a series of eight statements where he's just pronouncing blessing on his disciples. And this blessedness refers to a state of soul satisfaction and divine approval that no longer depends on external circumstances. So it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, healthy or sick, powerful or weak, you can still be blessed, and this blessedness transcends happiness, as we'll find. But you have to brace yourself because the Lord's definition is not what you think, most likely, not what you expect. To see how Jesus envisions blessedness here, and very well may catch you off guard because it is so diametrically opposite of the way of the world. With this in mind, let's just get just a beginning taste of what Jesus offers here by reading through these Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 3 through 12. He says, starting in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Sermon on the Mount was the most significant message Jesus ever gave, and so it it merits its own special introduction, and we did that last week. And the Beatitudes are the most significant part of the most significant message Jesus ever gave. They merit their own special introduction, and that's what we're going to do with our time today. You know, before we start picking through these Beatitudes one by one, I want you to first gain an overall understanding of them. You need that first. You need to first grasp what the Beatitudes represent as a category and really appreciate 
how special, how meaningful they are, both in the Sermon on the Mount and in Matthew's Gospel, and really the whole Bible. You know, this is not the Law of Moses 2.0, but just as every Old Covenant believer knew the Ten Commandments, every New Covenant believer needs to know the Beatitudes. And so we're going to do this Q&A style. I want to help you answer four questions to better understand and appreciate the Beatitudes. Four questions to help you better understand and appreciate the Beatitudes, how significant they are. And these questions are all going to center on this notion of being blessed. Each of the eight Beatitudes begins with this proclamation of blessed or blessed. And we really need to unpack this, this word, this concept, what's behind it, what's underneath it, what's around it. We need to understand what Christ means by blessed, or we're not going to get very far in understanding and appreciating, valuing these Beatitudes. So four questions. First, what does it mean to be blessed? We've got to start there. Like, what, what does it even mean when he says blessed? This is obviously a huge question. He's pronouncing blessing eight times on his disciples. This message we established last time is geared to his disciples. We need to know what he means by this. What's the biblical definition of blessed? Now, I distinctly remember, this is one of the first Bible studies I ever did. I became a Christian my freshman year of college way back in 2001. And that first summer, a friend of mine and I, I wanted to study the Bible together. I got into reading and studying the Bible, and I don't remember why, but the first study we decided to do was on the word blessed. I don't remember why, but maybe it's because we, we see this word popping up in Scripture all over the place. And so we wanted to know, like, what, what does it mean to be blessed? Sounds good. What does it mean, though? And so we just took a concordance, and we just looked up every time the word blessed occurs in the Bible, wrote it down, compiled our notes, and made some observations. That's kind of as far as it went, but it's not a bad way to start studying the Bible, actually. And one benefit I didn't have at that time was a little bit of a working knowledge of the Greek language. That likewise helps in studying the Bible and understanding, and and that's a good place to start here. In Matthew 5, this word for blessed is makarios in the Greek. It means the blessed one, but we ask, like, what's underlying this word? Maybe you've heard it translated happy, The Beatitudes have, in the past, been put as the the be happy attitudes. Happy is a fitting translation for those in the world. It's what they've settled for. They have no category for something greater than happiness. But happy is actually a very poor and misleading translation of this word. Happy, in English, if you didn't know, is more akin to happenstance. The English word happy comes from the old word hap which referred to chance or luck or fortune. And so the happy person was the one favored by luck or chance. I mean, happy are those who just happen to find favorable circumstances. Happy are the lucky. And that's not far off from how we think of happiness today. That's not the meaning of this Greek word makarios. This does not refer to a person who's favored by chance This is a person who's favored by God. The blessed person is fortunate and privileged, but not because of their circumstances. This is the person whose soul has been made full by God. The word makarios was used in contrast to a word endes, which means the needy one. So the blessed one is in contrast to the needy one. 
It's the one who lives in the world, but he's independent of the world. He doesn't need anything. And that doesn't mean he, he's rich, it's whether he has much or little. His fullness, his satisfaction doesn't come from the things around him. It comes from God. Happiness today, as you know, it's really much more of a feeling. It's an emotion, something you feel. But see, this blessedness, it's less a feeling, it's more a state of being. It's the state of being favored by God. So when Jesus says blessed, he's not pronouncing subjective happiness on his disciples, but objective divine favor. This is objective divine favor. And this comes out in the Beatitudes themselves. Jesus is not declaring what people may feel. He's saying what they are, who they are. These Beatitudes have nothing to do with your feelings. They're all about who you are. Christ is going to give us the character of the one who is under the favor of God. I mean, already you can probably tell Jesus has something other than the world's definition of happiness in mind, because pretty quickly he's going to say, blessed are those who mourn. And look, there's just no sense in which the world associates the, the thought of happiness with mourning or grieving. But Jesus is going to teach us that there is a sense in which a person can mourn and yet still be divinely favored. In fact, really precisely because they mourn, they are divinely favored, as we'll see. This blessing, though, this divine favor, it's not to say it's, it's detached from our emotions. What we'll see later, though, this blessedness actually stabilizes our emotions. This state of blessing is meant to fuel a much deeper sense of happiness along with joy and peace and contentment. And they all work despite your present circumstances. I mean, how else are we expected to obey these otherwise impossible commands in Scripture? Like, for example, Philippians 4, verse 4, which tells us, as a command, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice means to be glad. We're told to be glad in the Lord always. How can we do that? No one is happy all the time. But the one who knows the Lord and is under his favor always has a reason to rejoice, to be glad in the Lord. And that gladness should supersede any other emotion. Years ago, I I remember my dad criticizing the parents of my childhood friend. They had become Christians, and they incessantly used this word blessed to describe themselves. They were always pretty happy, pretty cheerful, and they kept saying how blessed they were. Anytime anything good happened to them, they're blessed. It was God's blessing. But even when bad things happened, even when things didn't go well, they still described themselves as blessed. My dad, who's not a believer, had, could not make sense of this. He had no understanding of how someone could have a state of blessedness or happiness that wasn't tied to circumstances. He couldn't make heads or tails of this, and it frustrated him. You know, when the tide comes in, all boats rise. When the tide goes out, all boats sink. And so it goes with our happiness, right? It just comes and goes based on the ebb and flow of life. But you realize not all things rise and fall with the tide. Think, for example, of the great Morrow Rock. 
Right? The tide comes in and out each day, but it doesn't move at all. It doesn't go anywhere. The rock remains unremoved. And so it goes with blessedness. This divine favor is not married to circumstances. Someone could have so little, or they could have lost so much. They could be enduring so much suffering and yet still be blessed. How that can be, we have yet to see. But for now, you should better understand what it means to be blessed. To be blessed means to be under divine favor, resulting in well-being of soul, irrespective of circumstances. I think what would really help now is just a picture, a picture of this blessedness. So question two, what does it look like to be blessed? What does it look like to be blessed? And I want to build a contrast here. So let's first start with how the world would picture blessedness. How do those in the world envision being favored or fortunate? And here, social media helps answer this question. I don't find too many good things with social media, but I guess maybe one silver lining, it enables you to quickly see how people use words. For example, this is kind of humorous, but seriously, if you look up hashtag blessed on Instagram, you're literally getting millions of pictures of how people associate blessedness, how they think of, characterize what it means to be blessed. For those of you who might be a little bit older, a hashtag is the way you associate a picture with a word. But I did a recent search of hashtag blessed, and here's what I found, how the world thinks of blessedness. Blessedness is good health. It's possessing a perfect chiseled physique by spending countless hours at the gym and then showing it off. Blessedness is also abundant wealth. It's that realtor flashing a new watch. It's that guy posing next to his dream car. It's, it's that the boat life where you're so affluent you can travel the world on a boat and show off all the exotic places you get to visit. Blessedness also takes the form of experiences and accomplishments. It's the perfect haircut. It's, it's that lasagna that came out of the oven just right. Yes, someone took a picture of that, and that was hashtag blessed. It's catching a monster fish. And then blessedness also involves having fulfilling relationships. It's birthday celebrations, it's wedding announcements, it's ultrasound pictures. The blessed person is the one who's surrounded by a loving family. This is pretty much the contemporary picture of what it means to be blessed in a nutshell. And it's all about earthly prosperity, be it in the form of health or wealth, accomplishments, experiences, or relationships. There were a few posts that associated blessedness with the more spiritual understanding. And I saw one picture, it was just text, and it said, being accepted by God is better than being accepted by the world. It's not so far from what it means to be blessed. But those types of posts really were few and far between. By and large, that the world, or at least those who use Instagram, Uh, associate blessedness with earthly prosperity. Maybe you do too. I mean, who doesn't want these things? Aren't these things good? Who doesn't want to be healthy and wealthy and have fun experiences and full relationships? Those things aren't evil in and of themselves. It's just that Jesus is going to paint quite a different picture of blessedness than what you're going to find in this world. You could lack all these things, 
You could have failing health. You could be dirt poor. You could have no worldly accomplishments to your name. And you could be all alone with no family. And yet still be richly blessed. In fact, you could be vastly more blessed than the one who has all these things. Think about in the day of Christ, Herod. Herod Antipas. He was the ruler of the region. He was rich. He was powerful. He was mighty. He was successful. He made a name for himself. He accomplished vast building projects. He ruled over thousands. Herod surely would think of himself as blessed, and the world would think of Herod as blessed. Jesus would not. Jesus would not think of Herod as blessed in the least. Now think of a guy like John the Baptist. Who's the opposite? He was an impoverished desert dweller. He lived alone, and he accomplished nothing, humanly speaking. Nothing to leave behind. And then Herod just placed him in a dungeon, where he'll later be executed. But Christ would say John is the most blessed person there is. Do you get that? How could that be? At the very least, you're seeing Jesus, he's not operating off of the world's picture or notion of blessedness. If you want to see now Christ's picture of what it means to be blessed, look no further than the Beatitudes. That's what you get. Let's read the the blessings again and just hear how countercultural Christ's picture of blessedness is. Back in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. And blessed are those who who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You read this list and you might think like, this can't be it. This doesn't sound right at all. I mean, this doesn't seem like blessedness at all. This is the opposite of what we think of as being under God's favor. You're not going to find these pictures on Instagram, the world says, blessed are the rich and famous. Blessed are the proud and the popular. Blessed are the aggressive who make something of themselves and become successful. Jesus says none of that. It's really just the opposite. Blessed are the poor, the sad, the meek, the humble, the merciful, the persecuted, the hungry. Really, the more you think about it, though, Christ's picture of blessedness is fitting of the paradoxical nature of his kingdom. He always uses paradox to talk about his kingdom. What does he teach? If you want to save your life, you're going to have to lose it. You want to be first, you're going to have to be last. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And the way up is down. You can't forget that Christ's kingdom is not of this world. So why would you expect the blessings of his kingdom to be of this world? But perhaps nowhere more than in the Beatitudes does Jesus showcase the the upside-down nature of his kingdom compared to the world. You know, in all, if the world sees blessedness as earthly prosperity, Christ sees blessedness as what? Spiritual character. And blessedness comes down to spiritual 
character. It's what these Beatitudes are all about. The one who is favored by God is the one depicted by this spiritual character. Now, if you want to properly understand the picture of blessedness according to the Lord, you got to take the word blessed and then sever it from all things external. Take the word blessed, sever it from the state of your body, your health. Sever it from the state of your finances. Sever it from the state of your accomplishments, your experiences, your relationships. All external circumstances are irrelevant when it comes to the Lord's picture and definition of blessing. And instead now you, you take blessedness and then you connect it to just one thing. You connect blessedness to the state of your soul. And that's it. And if that connection is made, everything else is a blessing too. Now look, as Christians, sometimes we will speak of God's material blessings on our life as blessings. And something good happens to you, you get a, a Christmas bonus, and you might say, I'm so blessed, or God has blessed me. And you're not, you're not wrong to say that. We rightly thank God for every favor he has shown us, including all the material ones. But just understand, here in the Beatitudes, Christ is showing us that this spiritual blessing far outweighs material blessings. That this spiritual blessedness, the state of your soul, far outweighs all material blessings. It's not even a competition. You could be the most materially blessed person on the planet, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, whoever it is now. And you could still not be blessed at all. You could be cursed. But then you could be the least materially blessed person around, a a destitute, sickly beggar. And you could be exceedingly blessed if your soul has been made right with God. And so the real picture of blessing Jesus gives us is, is a soul, a person who's come under the approval of God. The blessed one, according to Jesus, is he or she who can say, no matter what happens, it is well with my soul. Because their soul is right with God. It is well with my soul. So you put all this together, if you really want to take seriously how Jesus pictures true blessedness, you want a picture of it, that picture album is going to look a lot different than that of the world. If Christ were to give you some pictures of how he thinks of blessedness, you might find in there the prophet Isaiah, who was stuffed in a log and sawn in two. According to Jesus, Isaiah would be blessed. You might find Stephen, the first martyr of the church, whose enemies took large stones and threw that at him until he died. According to Jesus, Stephen would be counted blessed. Or you might find a group of Hebrew Christians who joyfully accepted the seizure of their property just for following Christ. And according to Jesus, they would be counted as blessed. I mean, doesn't he say, blessed are those who have been persecuted for righteousness? Was this not the way of the Lord himself? There's no one more blessed than Jesus, but even he didn't escape a cross. And he tells his disciples who want to share in his blessing that they likewise need to pick up their crosses and follow him. Where do you think he's leading you with that cross? The cross comes before the crown. There's suffering before glory in a fallen world. But with this picture in mind, 
Are you still sure you want to be blessed? Are you, you, you sure you want the blessing the Lord promises? Like I said, this might challenge some of you. I, I don't know. Some of you may have been duped into thinking that Christianity was just your ticket to a nice, safe, comfortable, middle-class life. But scorn, rejection, ridicule, suffering, meekness, humility. Who wants that? If this is what it means to receive the Lord's blessing, like, can I give it back? Why should you want this? We need to actually answer a third question now along these lines. What does it benefit to be blessed? We've danced around it, but what does it benefit to be blessed? In other words, is there any upside here? Because humanly speaking, like the world's blessedness seems way better than the Lord's blessedness. But you see, that's just it, isn't isn't it? Because we're not just humanly speaking. If there was no God who made us, if there was no God to whom we would have to give an account, then yes, blessed are the rich and famous. That's it. But you see, there is such a God. And your soul will stand before him one day. And on that day, you're going to have to answer for all of your transgressions. And on that day, as Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? You see, Scripture teaches us that all mankind is not blessed but cursed. We are all under God's curse. Originally, God did bless mankind. Genesis 1.28, God made Adam and Eve, and it says he blessed them. He made them in his image. They were holy. They were unfallen. They, they were in his, under a state of approval. He blessed them. They were in his favor. But you know, as they fell into sin and from Adam and Eve onward, man has rebelled from God and we've sought blessedness elsewhere. We've turned away from the creator and started stuffing our souls with everything the creation has to offer as if it could be enough. Like we said before, it never is. It fails to satisfy. It never lasts. But worse yet, Now we're under God's judgment. God cursed mankind in his rebellion. Part of that curse pertains to this life. We're cursed to a vain and futile life here below. If you just read the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll learn all about that. But it doesn't stop there because we're also cursed to death and eternal death. Like Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But you have to think about what that death represents to us. Our souls were made, created by God, but made to live forever with God and to find fulfillment in Him. But in hell under judgment, that's where we are cast away from the blessedness of God's benevolent presence. We really are finding the sentence of eternal dissatisfaction. This makes me think of the punishment of the the Greek mythological figure Tantalus, who because of his crimes was made to stand forever in a pool of water under a fruit tree. And every time he reached out to grab a fruit, the branches lifted up out of reach. And every time he stooped down to take a drink, the water receded. And he was stuck there forever, dissatisfied. Or if you want a more biblical picture, how about Christ's own teaching of the rich man in Luke 16? Because here's a guy who was the epitome of blessed, according to the world standards. Luke 16, 19 says there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple 
That was the finest clothes back then. And it says, fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. Joyously living in splendor every day. You're probably thinking, sounds good. I'd like that. I'm talking about blessed, right? Wrong. Because his soul was never made right with God. And so upon death, he descended to hell and he was left to beg that one might just dip the tip of their finger in water to cool his tongue, for he was in agony, in flame. It's a picture of perpetual torment and dissatisfaction, cut off from God's good presence. The only thing that can fill the soul and give meaning is you're cut off from eternally. That's the curse that awaits us all. The Old Testament warns of this curse. And look, hey, all you have to do to avoid it is just keep the law of God perfectly your whole life. That's it. I mean, that's all you have to do. But of course, no one comes close to that. And that's why the literal last word of the Old Testament is curse. We're warned of the coming curse of God. But thankfully, there is some good news. The good news is that this God is also gracious. And that grace means he's apt to give us what we don't deserve, and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Namely, forgive us our sins and make us righteous. And that is what this God was doing in sending his son. Jesus came to do more than than teach. He was sent ultimately to die on that cross. He He suffered, he was persecuted, he was rejected. He died on that cross. And he rose from the dead. He did so to pay the penalty for all of your sins and then to grant you his righteousness. He came to make us truly blessed, reconciled with our creator God, approved by God. The Old Testament ends with the warning of God's curse. New Testament, though, essentially with these Beatitudes, the first message of Jesus in the New Testament gives us the promise of God's blessing from the curse to the blessing. You can also read about it in Galatians 3, for example, 13 and 14, which says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. It reminds us that long ago, as God was initiating and carrying forward his plan of redemption, he made a promise to a pagan named Abraham, an unconditional promise by his grace, just to bless him, to show him his favor, to reconcile him to himself. And then God promised that in Abraham, through his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Man would find divine favor and approval once again. And that promise is fulfilled only through Christ. And that's only in Christ we gain the blessing of salvation. This reconciliation of your soul to your creator. And there is no greater blessing. Like, listen to Psalm 32, 1 and 2. This is the psalm, one of the psalms that King David wrote right after his whole sin with Bathsheba and, and her husband. His sin, he repented though, but then he wrote this, Psalm 32, 1 through 2. He says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whom 
in whose spirit there is no deceit. How blessed are the forgiven. And if you're here today and you know your sin, you don't have to be convinced. You've already seen it. You've seen the weight of your sin and guilt before your creator, God. You know you're unrighteous. You've acknowledged your condemnation. Then you, I hope, know along with David that this forgiveness, that the weight lifted, the debt erased, this forgiveness through Christ is the greatest blessing there is. There is no greater blessing than salvation, than what Christ offers. You would and should take that over what the world has to offer every single day. God made all of mankind to exist along this one relationship. I will be your God, you shall be my people. That's it for all of us. I will be your God, you shall be my people. In our sin, we've all forsaken that relationship. And it's resulted in earthly discontentment and then eternal dissatisfaction. But by faith in Christ, that relationship is restored, resulting in earthly contentment and eternal satisfaction. That Jesus came to give our soul peace. Like John 14, 27, he said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. I mean, you want to talk the benefits of divine blessing. Just think about the fact that your soul is made right with God, justified by faith in Christ. And if that's true, you can honestly say, ultimately, every day is a good day. You have a reason to smile and be glad every day. Look, there may still be days of great suffering. It's actually promised. But those sufferings can at least remind you that this is the closest to hell you will ever get because of what he did for you. And meanwhile, now, though you suffer like Christ suffered, God is with you. His presence by his spirit is with you, not to curse. He's now present to bless. And his presence can give you perfect peace. I mean, it's not like you have to wait until the kingdom of heaven to start seeing the blessedness of salvation. You're already in possession of the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that what Christ said in the Beatitudes? Look back to verse 3. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Present tense, present possession. But that's not all. Let's, let's read through the other benefits. We've seen the pronouncement of blessing. What are the benefits Christ lists to these Beatitudes? Verse 3, he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Continuing on, verse 4, they shall be comforted. Verse 5, they shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. They shall receive mercy. They shall see God. They shall be called sons of God. And theirs, yours, is the kingdom of heaven. Why should you want this blessing? Why should you want anything but this blessing? The material blessings that those in the world strive for and struggle to get, and maybe you do as well, you make your life about these things, at the end of the day, they're like a mirage in the desert. And by the time you get to them, they just dissipate, they disappear, they don't fulfill, and you're off hunting the next mirage. Just stop. They don't satisfy. But if you gain the blessing of salvation in Christ, 
you find earthly contentment and you will find eternal satisfaction. And just to finish up, there's only one question left for us to answer. Briefly, what does it take to be blessed? How do you get it then? What does it take to be blessed? How do you gain the favor of God? In one sense, there's nothing you can do. It's God's grace. It's his favor to give, and he does so according to his will. But in another sense, from our perspective, God has promised to bestow his favor on the person depicted in these beatitudes, chiefly the opening salvo, which depict the requirements for salvation. The first four, you must be poor in spirit. You must mourn. You must be meek. You must hunger for righteousness. We'll start unpacking these one by one next week. But in short, if you want to be blessed like this, you've got to first recognize your spiritual bankruptcy before God. You've got to mourn over your sin. You have to humble yourself before him and seek his righteousness. If you do all this through the one and only Savior, Christ Jesus, you will find God's favor. You can be justified or made right with God by faith in his Son. This is how you gain the blessing. You just have to gain Christ. You don't need to gain better health. You don't need to gain more wealth. You don't need to gain better experiences or relationships. The only thing you must gain is Christ. And if you're here and you haven't done so, it's time to open your eyes and make the great exchange. Do you want to save your life? Do you want to be fulfilled? Well, all you have to do is lose it. Just give your life away to the Lord. Deny self. Forsake living for all the things the world lives for. And instead, just gain Christ by faith in him. Give him your life by faith. And the marvel is he gives your life right back to you as new, renewed, fulfilled, everlasting. And so I pray you seek, find, and live in the blessedness of the Lord. Return to your creator and your savior. He will give you the satisfaction your soul cries out for. In the words of Psalm 144, verse 15, how blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Let's bless his name in return. Pray with me. Our God in heaven, we do say, hallowed be your name. Blessed be your name. As you read this morning, may our soul exalt in you and bless you now. We sing your praises and give you our approval for all that you've done for us. Recognize our sin before you, Lord, how we fall so far short of your blessing. We are rightly under your curse for our sin. But we thank you that you sent Christ, not only to teach these beatitudes, to show us the way, but to provide for the way through his death and through his resurrection. He, he made that way possible. And clearing the path of our sins, filling it up with his righteousness that we might be accepted, reconciled to our God. We've all tasted and seen that the way of the wicked is hard. We've, we've all pursued the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and I think we've all tasted the emptiness that still results. You made our souls too big for the things of this world. Only be filled by you, Lord. Help us see that. Convict us of that. Even now, we're still often chasing the things of this world. Instead, might we seek first your kingdom, your righteousness, and trust you for everything else. And for those who've never done so, open their eyes. Help them to see that you're the, the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other hope but you. 
and fill us with Christ, the knowledge of him, the presence of him, the blessedness of him. May we follow him wherever we go. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.